Welcome to another episode of the Moving Spotlight Podcast. This is your chance to learn how to take control of your creative career. We discuss the tactics and mindset it takes to elevate your skills and craft in any creative endeavor. If you're listening to us as a podcast, be sure to check us out on YouTube. And if you're watching us on YouTube, give us a listen on your next walk by the river. Uh, if you have a river near you. We have a brand new Patreon page where you can support us and help us create more great content. We want to thank our newest patron, Paul Melkor. Paul, thank you for supporting the show. Now let's get on with it. My name is John Ruby. This is my main man. Corbin Quayle. Hey, everyone. Today, we're excited to have Brian Holdman on the show. Brian is a writer and producer on such shows as Pretty Little Liars, Vampire Diaries, and the brand new show, Our Kind of People. Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Oh, my gosh. We are excited <laughs> to have you here. Uh, we want to jump right in. I am curious now, we're both Northwestern grads, Brian. Yeah. And when did your love of performing, entertaining, writing, when did that spark start? <laughs> that's a um, that's a lifelong um, journey that I've been on. I actually started out in the theater um, and all of my childhood, all the way through college, I was a, actually a performer, mostly musical theater. Um, and I also loved literature um, and uh, reading and so sort of theater and reading and writing. Um, I loved academic writing too. And all these things kind of were separate, distinct things. And when I stumbled upon the radio TV film major at Northwestern, and then uh, within that major into the creative writing for the media program, uh, I, I suddenly began to see ways that all these things linked up. Um, first of all, studying film um, from a critical standpoint, you're reading the film much like you're reading any piece of great literature. Um, and so that suddenly clicked. And then um, in my film and TV production classes, I was seeing all these parallels from my experience in the theater and realizing that this was just another place to put those skills all together. And it just kind of like, it kind of clicked at all the things I loved, but like in one place. And I find that to this day, um, I'm still drawing on um, things I learned in in high school and college theater classes and literature classes um, as a part of the work that I do in television. Yeah. Is yeah. there, um, was there a specific like show or time or thing where you're like, this is, this is what I love to do. You know, like it was, it, was it, was it that specific or was it a little more like just kind of, it was always there. It was always there. And I was yeah. like kind of picking up little pieces and realizing like I have this interesting skill set and this is this thing that I love over here. And boy, this really kind of gets my wheels turning, but it just, it took me, it took me the journey to figure out how to pick the pieces up and kind of put them together in the right way using hand signals to also <laughs> demonstrate because I also I loved Legos and so so it's <laughs> um but yeah it was it was a real journey you know it was a real journey I I, I um it was a real journey yeah yeah do you yeah. did you have like a yeah. teacher at some point in your life that like kind of gave you some nugget of truth that you still keep with you in your back pocket whenever you're writing or oh my goodness um yes actually because it's one of the most true pieces of advice I ever heard. It was my eighth grade English teacher. Um, and he was critiquing an essay that I had written. It might have been on The Great Gatsby. Um, and uh, he, it was, he, he turned this, this um, he turned this piece of writing back to me with the word kiss written at the top which is an acronym for keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. um, and it, it just, you know, I, I, um, I can tend to sort of really get grand in the way that I'm trying to convey mm. ideas and thoughts in my writing, um, especially at eighth grade. Like I was, I was definitely, <laughs> yeah. I was swinging for the bleachers with my <laughs> academic writing in eighth grade. Let me tell you what, I really was. And I think it's just because I had this love of words and this love of language. And I yeah. was really just like, I, I, I was not the kid who was like, oh God, a 10 page essay. I was like 10 pages, that's like so short, you guys. So, <laughs> you know, I was always, I mean, so I was, 
I was diving in and really kind of like looking for, for uh, loving the the uh, the opportunity to just all the words, all the yeah. words. Yeah. And this piece of advice, keep it simple, stupid. It just keeps coming back to me, and it is a great kind of little simple thing to have ringing in the back of my head anytime I'm writing. Um, to be able to recognize when and where I'm overwriting, you yeah. know, and and um, to continue to develop my my inner editor in a way that is useful especially in television um where sometimes when you're when you're being asked to rewrite or edit it's actually got to be quite precise um yeah. in terms of uh, uh preserving the structure of the episode but then trying to fix things that are super technical and maybe not even related to story at all and how do you do that how do you go in there and fix the thing that needs fixing without wrecking the scene or derailing production, which is a train that is rushing down the tracks and you've got to kind of just shoot. <laughs> yeah. And, and that can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Brian, one of the things I was thinking about is, is especially when I'm, when I'm, you know, working with actors and, and, and teaching and sometimes when I'm working with some writing stuff is this idea that, that you touched on, I, which I think is, is also this idea of like keeping things simple and clear, mm -hmm. but it doesn't make it easy. Right. Sometimes we hear simple and it's like, oh, it's, so it's easy, you know, or keep it clear. No, it's not easy, but mm -hmm. that simple and having that clarity, you know, in writing or in acting is something that like we're constantly kind of, you know, honing and trying to kind of get, get back to, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, there's a great, uh, I love Groucho Marx and Groucho Marx wrote like a pretty long letter. And he's like, sorry, I didn't have the time to make it to write a shorter letter because <laughs> it takes time to, to, you know, get the same message across in less words. And I, and I, and I love that, you know? And so I think yeah. with what you're talking about, there is that constant process. It sounds like, you know, with writing of like how to keep it simple and clear, mm -hmm. but it's not always easy to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the same is absolutely true for acting. I, I watch a lot of acting. Um, yes. And and I find that um, the actors who are sort of maybe having a more complex um, process, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, that the, the technical part of the acting tends to show up ahead of the performance. Mm -hmm. And the actors who are more dialed into like what is simple and essential about what this character wants in this moment and how they're going to go about getting it. Yeah, uh, the, the technique is not evident and you're much more sort of like in it with a living, breathing being, Yeah, you know, which I, is what I, you I, want as an actor. Totally. Sometimes it's like you can see it. I can see a click in an actor and I call it the zip line, Brian, mm -hmm. which is like the one thing is like they just like zip line through the scene with what you're talking about, where it's just like, you know, and that mm -hmm. thing, once they find it, uh, can can take them through. Um, yeah. And the truth of the matter is, too, from a writer's point of view, because in television, you're you're working a lot with the same actors. And mm -hmm. so you're getting a sense of um, what their skill set is, where they're super strong, where they're, I don't want to say not necessarily weak, but like yeah. where they may be bringing certain things to the character and, and letting other things kind of not be a part of that character's whole being. Yeah for yeah. various and sundry reasons. I, I don't ever want to just be like, and they're weak at comedy. <laughs> <laughs> they're deficient. They cannot do, don't give this yeah. person a do joke. better don't next time. <laughs> but in terms, of, in terms of getting to the point where they can zip line, yeah. uh, it, it, it is incumbent upon the writer. If the writer has done the work to simplify yeah. on the page, then yep. you're actually giving them um, exactly the right weight and balance to be able to zip with speed through a scene where it is seamless for them because they can pick it up off the page and immediately be like yeah i exactly see how to do this you know yeah. so yes. it is it's 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 a part of that relationship between writer and actor even though um you know i think tv in in my experience uh, interaction with actors sometimes can be limited mm. um, being conscious of that and paying attention to the actors that you're writing for is also a big part of the job yeah and it's interesting on the on the acting end with what you're talking about brian i've seen that actors when the scene makes sense to them they learn the like they memorize the lines a lot quicker mm -hmm. so sometimes when a scene is confusing or you know if the writer's still kind of finding it in a sense then it, it's like man i'm really struggling with these words and it's like well it, it hasn't been kind of you know, solidified on, on how it should. So it's interesting how sometimes like the, the, the memorization, you know, or whatever, or just like, like oh, having yeah. the words sink in can connect oh, with yeah. where the scene is, is landing. 
right? Yeah. Oh, I've I've experienced that in myriad ways over over the course of years. <laughs> uh, when it comes to writing for these, like, is it is it easier to write for a pilot or is it easier to write once you know these characters, like on episode three hundred nine? You know, like what is what is the? I mean, they're probably pros and cons of both. You know, no, it's a process. It, it it is a process because when you're when you're writing for when you're writing the pilot episode, it's not cast yet. And so uh, anybody who's in the position of writing a pilot is doing the work of creating uh, characters from whole cloth, from air. And a, a thing that you experience as a writer um, many, many times over, and it can be a hard lesson to learn, is that moment when it's no longer yours. And um, you only have a limited amount of time with these characters between you and the keyboard and the page. And then, and then in television, you really have to then realize, okay, that's where my work as the writer, um, where that, that private, beautiful, just moment of pure creation ends. The minute it's cast, the actor is bringing an attitude, a lifetime worth of experience, and, excuse me, myriad different perceptions to the character that you have written. And so now it becomes a conversation about this character. And um, so it's a different thing to write for a character as you begin to, over time, see it interpreted by the same actor, you know? And I'm talking about, especially being on a, a series like Pretty Little Liars for seven plus years, yeah. you're really walking through a, a long span of time and experience with these actors as they are growing the character. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it, even if it's not a face-to-face -face conversation through the page, you're still having conversations <laughs> with that actor yeah. and you're watching them in cuts and you're seeing the ways that they're growing in that character mm -hmm. and you're hearing, you're hearing their, their cadence. You are, you are now suddenly able to, when you sit down to write, you don't have like a vague sense of a Jennifer Aniston type. You have the actor who's cast in the role in your head as you're writing, and, and even that can be a, a powerful editing tool. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. And I, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will dive into, I will segue into a little story here because there was one character on Pretty Little Liars. Um, she played by Ashley Benson, uh, her name is Hannah. And um, for the first couple of seasons, just based on my own particular experience, I perceived the character of Hannah in a really specific way. Um, and I would constantly write humor for this character and then be like heartbroken at the table read when the actress just did not get the jokes, like the jokes just never landed, you know? Mm -hmm. And I would a little bit in those first couple of years, like in a way that I would not suggest for other writers, like I would kind of dig my heels in on certain jokes where <laughs> other people would be like, mm, I don't know, I feel like this one on page three, like it needs a tweak. And I'd be like, no, 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 it's gonna be hilarious. And then we'd get to the table read and it yeah. would just like, she would open her mouth and a dead trout would fall out. So, <laughs> but the thing is, it wasn't about her ability to deliver the comedy. It mm. was that I wasn't hearing and mm. listening and growing and figuring out where the actual humor of this character lived and so mm -hmm. i had to you know i had to i had to learn along with the actress who was who was growing this character where the humor lived for her performance not for my perception of what the character was but of the way she was inhabiting the character and once i kind of figured that out the the way i wrote her jokes yeah. changed you know yeah and then they probably landed <laughs> when you're like okay <laughs> yeah. this is you know i mean like, like they landed a lot better a lot better. They landed yeah. a lot better. And because I, I was then giving her stuff that she could like put on and, you know, zip line yeah. through, as you said. Let me ask you, Brian, one of the things I think is so important as a writer, actor, creator is kind of like falling in love with words, like a mm -hmm. love of words. Mm -hmm. What do you think, um, you know, what are, what kind of did that for you? Was it reading? I mean, I, I've, I've always been a big reader. Was it, you know, watching shows? What kind of, you know, hearing words? What, um, you know, I mean, I was never good at spelling, but I always loved words. Um, and so uh, I'm just curious, kind of that, that idea of the, you know, love of words, what that kind of means, means to you, how it resonates with you. Yeah, that's, 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 a that's, that's an essential, like, as long as I have memory 
<laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I do have long memory. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with an incredibly long detailed memory. So there are things from childhood that I can recall that my mother was like, that's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> developmentally. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then the green thing was over here. And then, um, so I think I attribute that. I, I typically attribute um, my love of language to a couple of things. Um, I think that um, part of it comes from, I come from a family of um, talkers and storytellers, mm. uh, very verbal people, you know, who um, throughout my childhood, it was, it was um, one that I experienced like kind of um, close community with multi-generational family that likes to get together in large groups and hang out and talk and you know it was the kind of thing where every Sunday after mass my great-grandparents would kind of have the family over and 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 we'd have lunch and I'd be playing with cousins up, upon cousins in the yard and great aunts and uncles and aunts and uncles and 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 so there was just this large community of people talking all the time around me um which made me you know kind of like a very verbal person and um was sort of the words were the first way that I learned how to like build relationships mm. if that makes any sense through talking mm -hmm. and to this day like my best relationships are the ones where we like get into it and talk as <laughs> yeah. like the main thing we do and then the second thing that I think um for me was really specifically my my mother um when I was um a kid um my mother was an elementary school teacher uh she taught mostly first and second grade and so my mom read to me a lot. I, I read very early because of, you know, because I think, you know, there was a lot that she was doing at work that she was kind of coming home and, and practicing on me. And, and um, I remember a lot with books and projects, things with spoken instructions. Um, my mom would test it out on me, the four-year-old, before she took it to her second graders. And it was just sort of like, if this little kid can like comprehend, then my yeah. kids should be able to get it and complete the task. And um, so she, and so she was, I had a lot of tools because of that at my disposal to, um, in order to indulge my, my, my love of language that really helped me develop um, my relationship with words from a very, very early age. I love that, Brian. And, and, and I definitely see that you come from a family of storytellers. I can, I feel that, you know, I was also thinking just for, for people that are, you know, um, like, how do they find that, you know, love of language? One of the things I was thinking about is you can read what people you like, like. And the reason I say that is, you know, I heard an interview a long time ago with Wes Anderson, and he was talking about the New Yorker. And at the time, I'd never heard of the New Yorker. And I was like, well, you know, he, he seems like a smart filmmaker. I like what he's doing. I like how specific it is. And I think he was talking about the, the film uh, critic, Pauline Kale, who I had never heard of. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to check out this New Yorker. I've had a subscription to the New Yorker on and off for many, many years. Now, when I read the New Yorker, I'm like, this is challenging. This is like, this is like chewy, you know, there's words in here where I'm like, I got to get to my dictionary, but I really enjoy it. And I found a lot of value and it's something that I was not exposed to. Um, maybe it was around, but it like, it took me kind of being like, okay, I want to see what successful people or people I want to work with or people that mm -hmm. I admire, what they're reading, what excites them, what interests them and see if it sparks something in me, you know? And mm -hmm. I think that's uh, just, a, just something that people can think about too, is like, if you don't know where to start, you know, see what, what your favorite books are from people you really like or, or things like that and see, you know, if that, mm -hmm. if that sparks something for you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then don't be afraid to explore. One, one thing that I did a lot as a kid, and, and part of it was just out of necessity. Again, I go back to my mother um, as a single parent um, raising two kids. Um, and for big chunks of my childhood, especially when my mother was in law school, um, our most effective babysitter was the Denver Public Library. Uh, because <laughs> no in part because the central branch of the library was a block away from her law school and so it was most convenient for me after school to ride the bus downtown and spend the afternoon doing my homework at the library a block away until my mom was done with her classes and then we'd go home um, especially if my mom had a night class even you know so I could be at the library fairly you know into the evening if, if necessary and and um you know, being a sort of a safe space. And so um, I 
because uh, you know I already sort of had the seeds planted, here was this big building full of books. And I was the kind of kid that I would be like, I would just wander and be like, that book looks interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? I mean, never you mind that I'm like pulling, you know, a, I, I remember once I pulled a book on, on, and this speaks a lot to like my entire resume of television <laughs> writing in a lot of ways, but a book about notorious serial killers in England. <laughs> and I was all of, I was all of a fourth grader. Oh my gosh. Pouring over um, yeah. the details of this murderer who used acid in barrels uh, to um, decompose bodies. Oh, yeah. um, and um, crazy, crazy. <laughs> Fourth grader you, it's like, whoa. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's, um, because, you know, John, you're, you're telling a very specific um, story, you know, in terms of, or you're talking very specifically about the experience of having someone recommend something to you, and that becomes your sort of first step into the forest, through which you will traipse and explore. Um, And that comes in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And sometimes people don't come from places where they have the people around them, who can, uh, sort of platform them in such a way. Um, and, and so there's many, many ways to find it. And libraries are still our greatest resource in this country, I think. And I, I, you know, if anybody's listening and they're like, I don't have people who, you know, sort of come from any kind of background that they can recommend stuff to me or help me curate, you know, what will become my own, um, sort of, uh, taste and, and, and predilection, um, that, don't be afraid to go to your library and just like explore, you know? Well, I think that that transition transition does really nicely. I was just thinking about when you were saying that like community and finding community. And I'm curious, Brian, for you um, with the, with writing and the writing community, did you find when you, I want to kind of fast forward a little bit when you were, were you writing a lot alone? Were you sending out, like, how did you kind of get like your foot in the door? Like, what did you, did you find, did you find a community? Mm-hmm. How did you kind of, um, work that you know or, or find that i guess yeah uh, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a, it's so funny because it's like a big long again it's a journey but yes. um i think um if i were to scope it down um i think for me um a lot of my community especially in my early days in los angeles the early days of my career um, came out of college community, Mm. really and truly. I I think I am one of those people for whom it holds very true that um, the most important thing you take away from college is the relationships that you build there. And um, so, you know, socially in Los Angeles, as I was just kind of planting my feet and starting to grow roots and trying to figure out how to exist in the business of entertainment, um, a lot of my creative community was um, built on relationships that stemmed from college, people who had also moved to Los Angeles, people who were also in the business in some way, shape or form, um, and maintaining uh, social relationships, but also um, having, you know, found those, those people whose opinion and feedback and direction I trusted for counsel along the way, people who were willing to read drafts, people who gave notes that that helped me get better at what I do. Um, and that was um, a really important ingredient in, 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 my, in my career, I think, having that. I always say if, 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 you know, if, if half my classmates hadn't moved to Los Angeles at the same time, and it really was, like, the, I would say the first decade in Los Angeles, almost my entire world was just an extension of college because so many of us moved out here. But it made it easy in a city that size, in an industry um, that can for some be that difficult to break into, you know, and I say that really, really specifically too for myself as a person of color, because those barriers are even higher and and wider um, to kind of try and penetrate uh, your way through. And and there are many who don't have that in, and it, it can be an even harder way in. So I'm super grateful 
to have um, had that that bit of of privilege because of my education that allowed me sort of um, a way in through relationships, through community. Yeah. And did you yeah. and did you always want to be a writer? Like when you moved out here, like were those relationships cultivated in that in that scope? You know? Yeah. By the time I moved to Los Angeles, I was I was very clear about wanting to be a writer. I had um, I had sort of put down my any any thought or ambition of being an actor actually at the end of high school um, and uh, college, even though I performed a lot in college still, I was doing it as a hobby and as an extracurricular activity. And at a school like Northwestern with its uh, theater pro program, it was very clear you know, over the years that my friends who were studying to become actors had a certain something that I did not have, you know, I was able to, I was able to do it enough to have a good time, get in a play and then get to go to some awesome cast parties. <laughs> 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 they were people who have gone on to be in film and television and on Broadway. So, <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, um, but, but yes, I, I, I knew when I moved to Los Angeles that I wanted to pursue a career as a, as a writer. Um, I, I thought for a long time that film was the way that I wanted to go, but that was I, was, I was coming to LA at a certain place in time where, um, and I didn't even realize it, the independent films that had inspired me um, and the independent uh, directors of color who had inspired me, like uh, 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 that was just coming to an end by the time I got to Los Angeles. But the other thing that I didn't realize, excuse me, is that um, I am a little bit more built for, for a television writer's room than I am for um, a really sustainable career as a feature writer, mm -hmm. um, just based on, on, on quir quirks of personality, if you will, and skill set. Um, and uh, I think my theater background, <laughs> you know, as a performer actually may, makes me much uh, better built for the, the way that television writing works. Pretty much Corbin, he's a, per he's, a he's a personable, likable guy. Yeah. So even in that writer's room works and then he needs his solitude, but he doesn't want to be solitude all the time. That's, I feel yeah. like that's, that's, that's in between the lines. I think. But also because, because pitching is performing. Yes, yeah. that's true too. You know, that's true too. Pitching and is performing, and and as you as you advance in your writer's career and you are on set more uh, in a in a, uh, in, a in your capacity as a producer, it's actually also uh, I think for me being able somewhat to speak the language of of acting mm -hmm. because I have an, a, enough experience so that when you're in those moments on set where um, an actor has a question and a director has a question and you need to try and figure out how to answer the question. It, it, it helps to be able to the best of your ability to give the answer in performer, not in writer. Yeah. Yeah, you for know? sure. Because those answers are, they sound different. And, 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 and yeah. even recently I, I've had an experience with an actor where I gave the answer as writer and, and then realized like, oh, that is not what this actor is looking for in this <laughs> moment. And <laughs> then I had to go back and translate. <laughs> I remember I did a play once, Brian, and it was about a family and five of their kids had moved from Ireland to the US and there was like four other brothers and sisters in, in Ireland and, and the writer was a new writer. And the actors were like, you know, what, what's going on with our four, you know, that are back in Ireland? You know, who are they? You know, what's their story? And he was like, I don't know. We're like, wait, wait a second. We have, we have four brothers. This is, he's like, yeah, they're just back in Ireland. We're like, okay, that's not satisfying the actor brain. We need to like know our other family members, you know? And like I said, he was, he was inexperienced um, at the time. So it was like, not a satisfying, it was a different answer. You know, he's like, well, they're yeah. not in the play. So you don't need to know. We're like, well, no, we do. We do want to know. <laughs>
this as a job professionally since 2006. Um, Two thousand, my goodness, two thousand seventeen. So a good ten years into my career, um, was the first time that I was in a room, and at that point I was a co-executive producer. That was the first time I was in a room where I wasn't the only person of color. Um, and but only four years ago. It's not that long ago. <laughs> not that long ago. Yeah. And now the rooms, the room. Now I'm. I, I. At the same time, I do count myself lucky in that. Um, before that, um, most of the rooms that I was in, at the very least, were diverse in terms of gender, mm. um, and in terms of um, in terms of. Uh, age and in terms of sexuality. Um, but pretty often it was me and maybe one other person of color mm -hmm. in a room of seven, eight, nine, ten um, writers. Um, I think that in terms of so 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 that's a whole thing. Because <laughs> there's so many experiences that you have where um, I should say there, there have been moments that I have had where it has been challenging to um, do the work in the room, specifically when you're talking about characters of color that you're writing and you're the only voice that's sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> everybody in this room has one opinion, you know, but it's not necessarily connected to the lived experience that might inform the way that this character is being written. Mm -hmm. And can we take a look at that? You know, um, that's not always easy to do. And it's especially not easy to do when like me, for many of those experiences, I was a younger writer in the room. Um, so I was at that point in my career where I was still sort of getting my land legs and um, didn't have a lot of experience under my belt. And um, that makes it challenging to sort of speak up sometimes because even just your mindset, you're like, I just got here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, um, yeah. I just got here. I'm holding on for dear life. And um, yeah. is this the day that I'm going to like implode my career, you know, by standing up in this way? Um, and, and so that can be, that can be a little daunting and a little challenging. And then, and then also, you know, I think in that time period, that I that I'm talking about too, there were less opportunities to write characters of color. So there's also this strange and dissonant experience of um, you want to be able to bring yourself to the storytelling in television. Um, that's what gives it, uh, it, that's what gives any storytelling its weight. Even if you're not telling a story that is autobiographical, in a, in a writer's room, very often people are sharing snippets of their own story as a point of access into character and motivation and backstory and all these other things. We are, we are telling our own stories around the table to find a way to inform what is going on with the characters. Um, and so there's also this, this thing that's missing when you're mostly writing for characters who are white. And now, because I'm a person who um, has spent a lot of time in majority white spaces, like I've, I've done a lot of learning, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm bilingual in that sense. Mm -hmm. but, um, but then there's a little piece of me that's also always packed away on the side. And, you know, I've had to sort of take time outside of my work life to engage with that writing that is more deeply connected to who I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and have I think, you seen it change? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, you're you're asking the question that I was just turning the that's, corner that's around to. I figured, have I yeah. have I seen it change? I am seeing things change, and also um, the the things that are changing in the writers' room, the things that are changing in terms of casting, and some of the stories that are being brought to the screen. Um, I am seeing change, but those are still the places 
that are perhaps affecting perception, but not actually changing culture in terms of where the entertainment industry needs to do better around including more people from more backgrounds to tell more of their own stories. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, part of um, what can sometimes um, be a little enervating is um, it's easy to greenlight a show with a majority black cast because then that puts quote unquote diversity in front of eyes. Um, and for a lot of companies, that's the only work that they're willing to do to solve the problem is like to put it on screen in a way that says, see, people who are not white people look at all the work we've done, but they're not changing the culture of their company. They're not changing their hiring practices. They're not changing um, uh, 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 their leadership um, in meaningful ways that ensure that people who are making decisions, people who are fighting to get stories told on the executive side, that those spaces are also populated by a multitude of people from a multitude of backgrounds with a multitude of experiences that can affect not only the, 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 the way shows are being cast, but can affect the kinds of stories that are being told and actually the way that we are telling stories. Because even there's even, I mean, if we're really gonna get into it, you know, there as a as a as a as a as a writer in this industry who who has, you know, when you spend a lot of time studying the way that Western and American storytelling lays out, the storytelling tropes even hold a lot of um a lot of bias and a lot of um, thinking that reinforces, you know, sort of a status quo that is cisgendered, heterosexual, and white, and that those are the only valid heroes and heroines and people um, about whom stories can be told, and that a lot of the time, the the diversity comes in the background, the secondary characters, and and even oh, I was watching something. Um, I'm not gonna say the title of it in part because it's not coming to me in the moment, but where it was just so conspicuously, egregiously cast with mm. in every shot, let us put a silent person of color as background just over the shoulder of rec recognizable white male actor. Right. And let's call it a day at that. You're right. Job we did our job. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, there's more work uh, to be done. <laughs> definitely. I um, I really enjoyed, Brad. I don't know if you saw uh, Watchmen on HBO. I thought that mm. was really, I don't know if you saw it, but I thought it was really well done. And I saw an interview, make sure I say his name right, Damon uh, Lind Lindelof, who was kind of the yeah. over, you know, and who, who, who's, who's, who's a white guy. And yeah. I think his staff was, was, was definitely, or his writing staff was very diverse. And the behind the scenes I saw was really interesting because he said that he, was opening it up in the writer's room to discussion. And he said it was really challenging because they were really pushing at him of like, here's what needs to be said. Here's what he's, and he was like, it was like, it was tough for him to like, let go in a sense of, you know, these mm -hmm. certain things. And, you know, at least in the interview, he said he, he, he did because he's like, okay, I, I, he didn't quite understand is, is my point. He thought he did, but he didn't. Yeah. And he kind of needed it shoved in his face. And I, I thought that was really, you know, interesting to hear. And I thought, I thought the show was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. But it was interesting to hear that kind of, you know, behind the scenes of that kind of, it sounded like that tension or that fight, you know, or that intensity that needs to happen, Brian, for shifts to happen. Otherwise mm -hmm. it's kind of like someone just over the shoulder, like you're talking about, you know yeah. what I mean? If, if, that's, exactly. if that's not happening. Yeah. yeah. Everybody has their arm out. And then they're going like, wait, we're fighting for the same thing. <laughs> and then there's yeah. kind of that moment of that like intense standoff, which I think is important to have. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to uh, uh, ask you, Brian, because um, we went real deep there, which is great. Do you have any advice for people if they want to be a creative, a writer, actor, mm -hmm. kind of like daily habits? Now, I know you've recently kind of moved outside of LA, still relatively close, you know? Yes. So like, like, how do you you know, either stay, I guess I have two thoughts. One is like on, on task, what you do, you know, kind of do like if you set up a routine and then also what you kind of do to re recharge. So I think both those things, how you kind of stay in it and then how you get out of it. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear mm, your thoughts. Mm, mm, mm. Um, staying in it is, and I'm a person who struggles with routine. 
I'm a person who struggles with routine. So, um, and, but that's an important, um, I used to think that that was a weakness. Mm. Um, when you work in TV for a long time and you realize like, that you are all on a wild train ride together. <laughs> yeah. You're on a wild train ride together. Um, and uh, I used to fight to, to, to sort of really order my life because I thought that's what it took to be a successful person. But I was working in a field with so much variance and unpredictability that um, my, my inability to maintain routine I began to realize like parts of that are useful in terms of maintaining active flexibility um, to be able to roll with the way that production throws curveball after curveball after curveball. And you've got to, you know, you've got to matrix it. You've got to, you've got to Neo it, you know, <laughs> or yeah. as I often say, um, you've got to, I, I, I use this analogy a lot too. You've got to sort of, you've got to sort of mimic um, soft set jello um, in that, like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just soft enough that like, if you decide you, you don't want grapes in your jello, but you want strawberries instead, that you can yeah. pick out the things that you don't need and put in the things that you do. And mm. then the, at the end of the day, the jello will still set just fine. Mm. But there's like a, a window mm -hmm. where you can do that, right? And yeah. so maintaining that active flexibility is a, is a big thing, um, I think, kind of across the board for anybody in a creative career. You know, yeah. there's just, there's unpredictability, there's instability and, and getting good at maneuvering around that while kind of still holding some kind of thing, um, some kind of center, I think is, is super important. Yeah, Brian, I just, I just read an article and it's about a woman who's like, start, tried to start all these routines in a sense during the pandemic of like morning meditation, evening meditation, taking walks, hot yoga, cold yoga, uh, spinning, you know, like all these different things. And I, the, the part of the article is kind of just like, letting go of some of that stuff, you know, not feeling like you're, you're failing because mm -hmm. you don't have a routine that you need yeah. to like stick to and be up at 5am, you know? So it's, it, I, I love that idea of like, um, uh, what did you say? Fle uh, uh, flexible, whatever you said. Uh, active flexibility, active flexibility. I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, that's really knowing when my best times of day are for what I want to mm -hmm. accomplish. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, typically mornings for me, early mornings for me are all about um, ramping up um, and powering on. Um, my my, I'm a I'm a, a at best I'm a daytime writer. So um, even when I'm not on a show, even if I'm just specking material or writing purely for pleasure, which right now that's the phase I'm in. I'm like writing ridiculous science fiction short <laughs> stories just to um, just just that's vacation for me. Um, so I try to reserve my, my good midday hours for that. And my evenings are about powering down. The writer's room specifically is a place that takes a certain amount of energy um, and a certain kind of energy. And um, uh, then you throw a pandemic and Zoom on top of it. And like, it's a lot. So, <laughs> so making sure that the evenings are really about consciously doing things that power me down. Mm -hmm. um, and taking care to do that so that I'm well rested and and also well exercised and also um, just sort of in the general sense, balanced and healthy and whole. Uh, the other thing that I think is super important, um, and, and I think this applies for a lot of us in creative careers, because we hear a lot of no, and because we are often um, doing work that um, though it is creative, it doesn't necessarily give us 100% creative satisfaction, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. um, is, is finding that creative outlet outside of work that in a very simple way gives you real creative fruition. From beginning to end, I set out to make or do, I make and do, I am able to put that before whatever the intended audience is, and I'm able to receive that satisfaction and that completion that I have carried this to the audience and, and hopefully have, even if the audience is just herself, have seen that satisfying um, result, that appreciation. Um, so for me, um, 
strangely, that's kind of, uh, that's cooking um, is, is for me, it's, it's not just about like getting my, my meals in daily, but it's that I can set out to make something, go through a creative process using ingredients and temperature and technique. And then at the end, I have a dish that either for me is really satisfying or for the people that I'm cooking for, you know, I'm able to see a table full of my friends or family um, happily, you know, taking in nutrition that I have provided for them. And it's a little play that I've made just for me. <laughs> I, I want to dovetail with that a little when it comes to, um, and you've kind of touched on it, but like with like writer's block or something like that, where it's like, you cannot get further in that. How do you maintain that kind of creativity in such a fast paced industry? If exactly as you're talking about, you want your morning daytime writer, how do you keep moving through it? If it's just, you can't for that day, you know what I mean? Well, you know, I, yes, that's it. That's a, one of the things I think is specifically uh, in television writing, like your, your, your next feature writer guys can talk about what they're doing alone <laughs> in the middle of act two of yeah. their feature. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things about sort of the, the process of a television writer's room is that by the time it is your turn as the writer to go off and sit down and put your draft on paper, um, so much of the heavy lifting has been done by the group that you have like a really specific blueprint mm. of what it is that you should be writing. And so it's hard, it's hard to get lost along the way unless you're, um, unless you're in a situation where, you know, your, your room is maybe not functioning as well, or you're in a rush and you, you sort of didn't lay the groundwork as well. Um, but it's hard to get lost, mm -hmm. you know? I found that in, 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 in television writing, the only blockages I had, the only stumbles I had um, came from, from maybe my lack of preparation versus true like writer's block. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's, it just, it, it, it doesn't feel baked into me, it, motivation wise though, I may find that, um, you know, I'm off in script and I'm just having one of those days where my concentration is bad, or as all of us writers like to do, you know, we are easily distracted by procrastination. And so it's like, oh, I do need to finish this act today, but I also see that laundry over there and that's more fun. Um, so, but that's just about sort of like mindset. And, and so I find that often when I'm struggling in that way, it's the first thing that I do is change location. Um, uh, the second thing that I might do is give in and um, just say to myself, okay, consciously, I'm having a little trouble settling today. I'm seeing all these other things that are distracting me. So I'm going to do those things today. Um, and I'm going to do them all. And then I'm going to sit down and write and the distractions will be gone. And I'll just have to, you know, um, uh, acknowledge that this is going to be a late day because I had trouble settling, but I, I don't, I, in, in the work of television writing, I don't find that writer's block is a thing that kind of fits, if, if that makes any sense. The thing I was thinking about uh, when you asked that, Corbin, is um, I think there's a lot in like I will say our business of, of writing, acting, you know, I'm even thinking of like commercials that I've helped cast or have been in where things are precious in the moment, right? Like, like you, like it is, it is work. It's people's livelihood. So it, we, we do want it. And, and, and precious, I just mean of like, you, you know, I found for myself that I really started working as an actor and help and in casting when I really cared about each product in a sense, or each thing or each job or each role, even if it was like, okay, this is a, not like my ideal role or this, like, I don't even know if I want to be slinging this thing, if that makes sense for a commercial. But when I really started to treat it seriously and made it kind of, a, I mean, maybe precious isn't the right word, but, but made it important in that moment. But also it's like, you're going to move on to the next thing. So you can't be like perfection, you know? So it's like having this thing that you, and I guess what it makes me think about Brian is like, when you're talking about your process of like, well, I know I got to do some writing and I don't, it doesn't need to be perfect, but I do need to care about it. I do need to spend time on it. I do need, it does drain me. I do spend energy. I think that's a very similar 
uh, thing for other other creatives, whether you're creating, you know, YouTube videos or a podcast or things like that, where it's like, yeah, you make it the best you can in that moment, but you also you need to make it and then kind of move on to the next day. And I think that's sometimes where people, at least that I have, have, you know, uh, not interacted with. Maybe I get it too, but like it's not that it's a perfectionist, but it's just like, well, part of it is just like you got to kind of keep working through it. You got to go on to the next day, and you got to kind of do it. Otherwise, you have nothing to kind of take a look at and see this is good this is bad you know but you got to commit yourself to that when you're in it you do and it's you know you you use the word precious there and that struck a chord with me as well because it reminded me that another thing that you need to do is um especially when we're doing this passion driven thing for our job is to find and stay connected to the thing that is precious in it for us, you know? Mm. Um, and, and for me, very specifically, there's, there's, it's, it's the zone. It's that moment where I am in deep conversation with the characters um, and the words that are coming out of their mouths through my fingers and onto the keyboard that feels almost it's almost like an it, when I'm in that zone, it's almost like an out of body experience. I lose when I'm really in the zone. I, I lose track of time, and and the world of the characters is almost more real to me than the surroundings that I'm in, and I enjoy that because again, as a television writer, and and, and talking about learning that moment when it's not yours anymore, that's the moment when the writing is the most mine if that makes any sense. That is just, it's just me and the characters. And um, I know at some point I'm gonna have to step back from that and be like, all right, this is what it is. And now there's a ton of people who, whose job it is to pop in and, and give feedback and contribute. But like, um, if I can try my best every time that I sit down and write to get into that space and enjoy it, you know, and realize that like, it's just this limited little window where I really do get to kind of have this out of body experience. Um, and, and I'm always joyful about that. And so if you can stay connected to that thing that is precious to you about the process, whatever your process is, whatever type of creativity you are pursuing, um, especially when you're pursuing it for your means of, of <laughs> employment <laughs> is, um, find that thing that is, is centered in, in the joy of doing it. Brian, and, and try I, and keep I, that at the center. When I first moved out to LA and I really got into improv, I was taking classes at IO West, Improv Olympic West, which started in Chicago. And I remember I had like an 11.30 PM show with my buddy, Michael Bellavia. It was a two, two person show. There was no one in the audience, but his boyfriend and the waiter, 11.30 PM. And we had a pretty good show. <laughs> and the reason I say that is we were in the zone you're talking about where we're like, Hey, this thing's cooking. We have no one barely in the audience in a sense, but we were loving doing it. And it was like, you know, it was like a, a really an improv terms. It was a pretty good show. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about of finding yeah. that where it's like, you know what I mean? There's no one there, but you're doing it and you're into it and you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 uh, treating it, you know, with the respect it deserves. And, mm -hmm. you know, it is, it is what it is. Uh, it is what it is, man. You know, yeah. love that. <laughs> love that. Um, Corbin, I was thinking we, uh, we, we should go to uh, best bad acting. What do you think about that? I was thinking that too. I think it's the time that Brian is oh, probably boy. stressing the most out about. <laughs> yes, Brian is like, wait, he's like, no, no, no. Okay. So um, Brian, this part of the show is very fun, more fun for us than you, but sure, um, sure. Um, so here's the thing. We're going to send you uh, some short lines in the chat from something. And okay. you're going to enjoy this and just have fun with it. You can make it big. You can do an accent, whatever you want. Uh, we thought this would be fun for you, Brian. And we might give you a redirect, but the idea is it don't try to be good. It doesn't have to be good. But, you know, if you need to take your moment at the beginning to get your center, just it's, it's to have fun. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a good one. Oh, this is a good one. Boy. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can <clears throat> focus it in. I kind of, I almost want to do it. Like, I do almost want to, whatever you need to do, do it. Well, no, it's not appropriate for this particular line given the material. 
I already, want, I already want you to get one of those hats. Like that's, yeah. that's my first thing that I'm seeing in the background. Yes. <laughs> if only, if only I had a crown. But alas, <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not right. But I have something that's like right for like later in the movie. <laughs> <clears throat> get right. it now, Brian. Brian, what is it? Is it get it now? Get it now. Do it. Do it. Let's no, do no, it. no, 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 no. Because it's it's. It, I'm just gonna. Okay. I'm just gonna do it with just the sweater that's on. Okay. I'm just Perfect. gonna. <clears throat> Perfect. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Ooh! Wow! Ooh. Oh, so oh, wow. spicy. There, there was kind of silence because I was like impressed. Yeah, yeah. I was, I like, was wow. too. I was, I was like, wow. Was, this is like usually we respond right away, but you kind of put us in a in a in a trance there, uh, well, Brian. I mean, Corbett, maybe Corbett. I, maybe I shouldn't have left my acting days. <laughs> maybe not. We're bringing it back. This could this could give you a gig, uh, Corbin. Uh, you have a. I, I do. Right? I, I want to. Okay. I want you to imagine you're on one of those yachts near you, and you have a cognac, cool. and you're just kind of enjoying the sunrise. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Okay. All right. <clears throat> so good. Magic mirror of them all on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? <gasps> oh my gosh. I saw I saw some like Leonardo DiCaprio Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, I did right too, there. yeah. Um okay. Okay, Brian. Okay. I I got one more for you. I want right. this. This is this is gonna be in your wheelhouse. This has got to be a musical. So see what you can do. This has got to be. There's something there, musicality wise. Oh, oh. <clears throat> it's early. I yes. have not warmed up. <laughs> wow, already the excuses, already. Corbin. The the sun's in my eyes. It's windy. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. When, I know, when I know. actors I'm come cold. in and audition for when actors come in and audition for Brian and they do this, Brian's like, Jesus, he rolls his eyes. But now that he's here, he's like, yeah. all these things. All right. All right. <clears throat> Magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? So beautiful. Wow. Yes. Oh my gosh, Brian. That was awesome. What a lovely voice you have. Yeah. Jeez. Why, thank you. That was really nice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, that was lovely. That was great. I think that was a perfect uh, uh, movie quote for Brian. So yes. thank you for, for, for crushing that. Thanks, guys. Um, yes. So, <laughs> Brian, we just want to say thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you being here, uh, you know, talking about all the different things we talked about. I loved, you know, we hit a bunch of really interesting topics. And so thank you for for sharing your experience and, and knowledge and, and joy uh, with us. And next time we have you back, you're going to, you, you, you'll cook something for us. How's that sound? And then we'll yes. all be in person, right? Does that sound good, <laughs> Corbin? We can try. We can try mm -hmm. some of that. That would be cool to do. So that sounds great. Um, we're remodeling my basement for a little studio, Brian. So we'll have you over for, uh, oh, for nice. that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. We're, getting that, we're getting that set up. So, uh, well, I just want to say thank you so much, Brian. We really appreciate your time. Thanks thank for you, being thank here. You. This was a lovely, uh, lovely interview. So thanks again. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Brian. Right. Thank you for listening to the Moving Spotlight Podcast. Please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. And we're on YouTube, so please check it out and like and subscribe. Hit that bell. Do all the things. We appreciate it. Yeah. Helps others discover us. So, Corbin, it's that time again. I have a one fun thing I want to share first, sure. which is I saw this great thing where some young person was like, you know, if you ever want to start a conversation with like an older person that owns a house, just ask about their like remodeling, what they're doing on their house. And I was like, that's so true. Um, always working on this house, but my house is over hundred years old, working on the basement. And what's exciting about that is we just poured cement and I didn't know this is what I, this is my learning fact of the day. I'm watering the cement <laughs> and watering cement daily. Yeah. Wait, like, like a, a little spritzer? spritzer. Like, yeah, you're like yeah, spraying it. Spritzer. What? Yeah. My, my, my buddy Jorge was like, well, you should, you know, he, he did this with his hand, like take it out of a bucket. And I got a little spritzer. And what it does is it, the cement for people that care, like this is, this is my interpretation might not be perfect, but it's like, if it hardens really quickly, then it can be more brittle and it's not as strong. And so if you let it harden slowly by watering it, then it, strengthens it and because my basement the ceilings are low it's 
it's a relatively thin layer of, of cement. So I've been down there every day and I'm just watering, huh. not a plant, but my cement. And it's, hopefully it's super strong. So I wonder who the first person oh. to discover this was. Did they drop a glass of water? I have no idea. <laughs> like, oh. I have no idea. Hopefully we get comments that are like, yeah, you're not supposed to do that or you are. Yeah, or yeah. You're right, John, or you're wrong. I don't know. So well, I'm down there watering it. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what you're doing. <laughs> that's my one fun thing. What about you, Corbin? My one fun thing is I, my, for the holidays, my mom was wanting a, a Dutch oven like pot. Um, and I just, I just ordered it on Amazon this morning and literally it said today it was going to arrive. And I just, yeah. it just blew my mind, the world that we live in that, I mean, it's probably, I mean, whether you like or don't like Amazon for the reason that they are able to deliver it in a day, but it's still yeah. crazy. This like pretty heavy item is like being able to be shipped to me in a, like right in December, like right on time. It's so weird to me. And I was just blow, I was just floored by it. it was just today really okay cool <laughs> i remember like you know one of bezos's quotes is like if i can get people stuff within like a you know two three hour window he's like i will dominate now he's already dominating <laughs> but like it is crazy that mm -hmm. like yeah it's something and that's very that's kind of specific if you know what i mean it's not like something like bigger and more generic where you know it's like oh we've got that it's like that's kind of a specific thing to have that close yes. to your mom to be able to get it to her i know, you know yeah it's I mean? insane like i mean i just asked her and got the idea and I just bought it and it was just literally that quick and, and like you said Bezos wants to get people something in one to two hour window it's crazy he probably can I will say <laughs> you know I think like some people might say like Uber Lyft taxi drivers are the worst drivers I think Amazon delivery drivers are kind of the craziest <laughs> yeah, like, that I've bro. seen I mean let's be honest from this is from personal my own personal opinion it's like what do you mean when they're actually delivery. driving like not even well just I just mean like they're, you know well they're, they're they're stopping they're checking where their next address is yeah. I just uh, you know I see a lot of u-turns a lot of you know <laughs> their hazards like are always on <laughs> the hazards are rather on yeah they're always so. <laughs> it's amazing um, but no, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, thanks again, everybody. Thank you for listening to an, another episode of the moving spotlight podcast.